Good morning, handsome 10 o'clock service. How are we all doing? You know, I've always heard that uh, the people are a reflection of leadership. <laughs> anyway, good morning to you all. Welcome. My name is Pastor Derek. If you don't know who I am, I just want to, you know, thank you for being here this morning. We're starting a new series entitled What's the Difference? Pretty excited about this. Um, what, what a great message opener, huh? Wasn't that awesome? Our dream team doing that. Uh, DJ just did a great job with that. I'm just so grateful for so many that serve so well. In fact, I want to highlight quickly, um, didn't Pastor Mark do a great job on Father's Day last week? Huh? Can we give it up? Come on, Pastor Mark. Way to go. Preacher boy. And that nugget he had this morning was pretty good too, man. The tadpoles and everything. Wow. I don't know what that third step either is. I was going to yell out amoeba. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I don't have exactly. That's why I saw myself. <laughs> anyway, you guys can get your worship guide out. You can follow along. This is a definitely a note-taking series. Um, highly recommend that. A lot of people say, I don't know this. I don't know that. Well, take notes. You will. And um, this is also just kind of uh, a series that will inform you and hopefully inspire you to share your faith. Uh, a lot of times people don't share their faith because they don't know what they believe. We emphasize um, in whom you have believed over what you believe. In other words, relationship is the critical element. So a lot of times we're trying to decide with our finite mind whether we're going to accept an infinite God. Are you guys tracking with me? So we need to come to God in faith, in childlike faith. And it's, it's through that experience that God opens our eyes, takes the veil off our eyes. In fact, Scripture reports that, you know, anyone turns to God or repents, it says the veil is taken away. Isn't that cool? So we have to really first come to God and say, you know, he's, he knows what's best. Big Daddy knows way more than, than I do, and I'm going to surrender my life to him. In the process, he'll open your eyes, and you'll be able to see things you couldn't see. And it becomes, I can see clearly now the rain is gone. Sorry. All right. Anyway, you guys don't know me that well, some of you, but it's all right. Um, but today we're going to kick it off with uh, a really relevant, relevant, uh, I think, message to our church and our community. We're going to talk about the differences between Catholicism and Protestantism. Is anybody interested in that? This will probably be like a four or five part series, kind of like an apologetics. It's basically to help you know what you believe so you have an answer. The Bible says we should have an answer to the hope that's within us. You know, we want to have a timely word, the Bible says, an apt reply. And so this is one of those series that's going to help you with that. It is an overview Okay, so just let me make that clear. There are a lot of things that we won't talk about, can't talk about in the uh, time allotted, but I'm going to do my best to major in the majors as we go forward. Kind of a theme text is Matthew chapter 5. You can look at it with me. Verse 14, it says, ye are the light of the world. Say, say me is ye. <laughs> ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hid. We should be shining bright. We should stand out as light in a dark world. Truth should do that. Truth should stand out. Truth should be able to be separate and distinct from all the other, like capital T, over all the small T's in the world. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, capital T. So sometimes the things that we, we've been given, sometimes they're suppressed, and sometimes we don't know what's best. But when we get it right in us, then it should shine bright in and through us to other people. Um, Paul said this in 2 Timothy 2.15, and he was an incredibly informed uh, converted student of God. In 2 Timothy 2, it says, study to show yourselves approved. So we should study. There is, hello, there is a place for, 
becoming like, you know, you can't have divine recall if you don't have daily devotion. That was good, okay? So, so you're not going to be able to pass certain tests if you don't actually study. So study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That means you should be able to have certain standards and convictions and absolutes in your life as a result of study. Now, as I go forward, how many, just so, just so we can see the relevance, the first service was, it was uh, obvious. How many of you, by show of hands, come from a Catholic background? Raise your hand, good and high. Look around, hold it up, hold it up. Wow, so we're probably in the 75 to 80% in here, 70, 70% probably in here. That's pretty normal. So, so, so if you haven't come from that background, this will help. If you have come from, because you'll understand better, like, where everybody's coming from. If you came from that background, it's going to be incredibly relevant to you. I want you to, I want you to know this. Um, first of all, I'm going to talk really fast because there's a lot of information. So some of you are like, wow, he's talking fast. It's not the caffeine. It's the gold, okay? <laughs> all right. Um, but I want you to know that, that Catholics are our friends, okay? And we are non-adversarial uh, with our Catholic friends. None of the religions that we will discuss is more aligned with our beliefs than Catholicism. It is fundamentally Christian. And so it is with great respect and consideration uh, that I talk about this topic. What I want to do, though, is uh, uh, show you some of the, get through some of the history, a few statistics, kind of bring you up to today. Then I want to show you some of our similarities and common ground. And then I'm going to show you some of the differences uh, at the end of the message. Is everybody with me? Here, here if you take your notes, write this down. Um, what does Catholic mean? Catholic means universal. The Greek word for Catholic, small c, actually, originally, is universal. It actually is basically saying it's an all-encompassing word. It was originally meant to be inclusive, not exclusive. It's been seen as, and sometimes perpetuated as, more exclusive, the one true church, and it has this kind of uh, messaging sometimes by perception or sometimes by reality but Catholic actually means universal. Now, in the world today, there are a lot of Catholics. In fact, there are 989 million professed, devout Roman Catholics in the world today, making up about, you know, something like a sixth or a seventh of the population within the world. In the United States, there's 75, currently 0.9 million Roman Catholics. That's 10 times more than we have Mormons. It dwarfs Mormonism in our country. But what's really interesting as I kind of get into doctrine is Roman Catholicism, uh, Roman Catholics uh, claim they are the only church who can trace its faith or roots back to uh, Christ himself. And so why do they believe that and why is that so important? One of the key scriptures for not only Protestantism but Catholicism is Matthew chapter 16. I'd like you to look in your notes or on the screens. This is where a kind of a big uh, debate or even controversy has come in. Again, it's foundational. Matthew 16, 13 says this, and I'll try to unpack this quickly. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, I want you to understand something. Before you can sometimes understand scripture, sometimes you need rules of biblical interpretation. One of those rules of biblical interpretation is context. So to be able to sometimes interpret a scripture, you must have the context of the scripture. Where is it? Where are they? Who's the audience? You know, sometimes you use a whole chapter, sometimes the chapter before, the chapter after. Sometimes you even use parallel texts in other locations within the synoptic gospels or things like that to really understand what is being said. So there's a lot of 
uh, rules of biblical interpretation understand something. But what you can clearly see is that this is uh, Jesus trying to communicate something revelational or relational to his disciples. And it says this. Jesus said, who do people say that I am? They replied, his disciples, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say uh, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So he's trying to get them to see, but who do you say I am is what he says right after that. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this, everybody say this. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this, everybody say this again. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, this word rock in Matthew chapter 16 has two interpretations for it in the Greek. There's one word, rock, petro, and there's another word, petros. Petros is referring to a piece of the rock, and petro is referring to like a foundational rock, a cornerstone. In fact, Scripture refers to Jesus as the cornerstone of our faith in other locations of Scripture. And so um, when this Scripture is, is sometimes being interpreted by our Catholic friends, what happens is um, they basically have a doctrine called apostolic succession. It's a big word. But I'll unpack it in a minute. But basically, they believe that the rock that Jesus is referring to is Peter. And what we believe as Protestants is the rock is our confession or our revelation of who Jesus is. And so the rock term there, Petros and Petro, Petros and Petro, are two different words. One's the big rock and one's the little rock. And if you look in the original language, when it refers to Peter, it's saying you're the little rock. When it refers to the revelation, it's the big rock. Does anybody trying to track with what I'm saying here out there? Okay, so Protestants believe the rock is the confession. When Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Peter responds, you're the son of God. You're the, the one and only. You're the Messiah. Jesus says, oh, my father revealed that. You have received a revelation. And upon this revelation, this I will build my church. They believe upon this rock, Peter, the church will be built. That's a big distinction, and those two things lead us down very different paths as we go forward. And so Catholics believe in apostolic succession. They believe that the rock is Peter, not Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> I have to get some humor in now and then, otherwise this will be really tough for you. Okay, so Protestants believe the rock is our confession. So we um, supportive text for this if you're interested. First Timothy two five <coughs> talks about us being like living stones. First um, Corinthians three eleven says that that uh, that Jesus is our foundational stone. Okay, um, Matthew seven. There's a scripture that talks about when the waves in the sea and all these different things happen. You got to make sure that your faith is based on Christ. That foundation is the same word rock there. If anybody needs to know that. Okay. So this is our major distinction. And so Catholics. Believe believe that Jesus named Peter the head of the church. 
at his departure, uh, Peter becomes the head of the church. And from person to person to person, all through the centuries, basically there's been a new Peter or a new pope, a new papa. Pope means papa, basically. And so they believe in uh, this apostolic succession. It originated all the way back to Jesus' appointment of Peter as what the Catholics call the vicar of Christ. Maybe you've heard that term before, the vicar of Christ. It's basically Christ's representative on the earth. And when the Pope speaks, it's, it carries the same weight or magnitude as the very words of Christ. That's why you see a tremendous reverence and respect for the Pope and what he would say or what edicts would come from his mouth. In fact, a big word in Latin is ex cathedra. It basically means from the chair of the Pope. So when ex cathedra, when he speaks from his chair, it's as if Jesus himself had spoke. And the basis for that kind of authority comes all the way back to the scripture in Matthew chapter 16. Is everybody tracking with me, yes or no? Okay, so can you see from this original position uh, that it's significant really to everything thereafter? In fact, in the middle of the 5th century, uh, leader Bishop Leo of Rome, he issued an edict that all should obey him in everything. Why? Because he carried the authority of Peter, who, of course, was appointed by Jesus himself. And I'll keep going through some history here, but as the centuries progressed, there were some really good things that were happening in church, and there were some not-so-good things that happened in the early church, and some of those not-so-good things started to go public at one particular time, and there were some rumblings between the East and the West. When I say East and West, the East is kind of the, a lot of religious activity and a hub for religion was in Rome. And then another hub for religious activity was in Constantinople, which was a Greek city. And so there was this division because the Western city was starting to add to Scripture. And the East said, no way, Jose, I'm not cool with you adding to Scripture. And so the East and the West began to split. And this big split... Historically, some of you may have studied this in religious classes or humanities or things like that. It was known as the Great Schism of 1054. And so the Byzantine Church and the Roman Catholic Church had this massive split. Skipping ahead, which is relevant to us in particular as Protestants, in 1517, there was this forerunner. He emerged kind of with the mandate from God to reform the church. He believed that, that God had called him to kind of bring the church back to God's standards, that it had left the uh, principles of Scripture. And uh, this particular forerunner, many of us know and have heard of him, was Martin Luther. In 1517, he arrived, and he was famous for several different writings, but one of them was known as Sola Scriptura, Sola Scriptura. It basically means scripture alone, that the basis and foundation for faith should be Sola Scriptura, on scripture. And so he basically, Martin Luther was very uh, assertive in saying the Eastern Church and the Western Church, you're both wrong because you have not lived up to or supported the scripture as the basis for faith. At that time, the Pope was not very excited about this challenger, but Martin Luther continued to teach scripture as the basis for life and faith. Later, kind of the end result, oversimplification, the West becomes known as the Roman Catholic Church, the East becomes known as the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the protesters, those that followed Sola Scriptura, became known as the Protestants. And that's how we got from yesterday to today. Is everybody tracking with me? Was that a good review? Okay. All right. So, moving forward... 
in a respectful and loving way. I want to get into some of the similarities between us and some of the differences between the two. Uh, but just, just a, little, a, little, a little edgy joke. Just, just bear with me. Don't get mad at this, but I just think it's kind of funny anyway. But there was a nun. There was a nun, and she was teaching religious class, teaching some young girls. And there was a, this was a seven-year-old girl. She was teaching about kind of her purpose and her faith. And, and she said to the young girl, what do you want to be when you grow up? And this young girl says, um, you know, I want to be a prostitute. And the nun's like, I, what? Excuse me, young girl, what did you say? She said, I want to be a prostitute. And the nun said, thank God, I thought you said you wanted to be a Protestant. <laughs> All right, I know that's edgy, but I'm just trying to be funny. I'm just trying to be funny. Come on, bear with me. All right. So the truth is, the truth is, over the centuries, there's been a little cold war between Protestants and Catholicism, okay? The, the Protestants have said kind of in so many words that the Catholics are not true followers of Christ. Uh, there's no sola scriptura as the emphasis. And, 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 the, and, and, and the, the Catholics are basically saying that, you know, we're the one true church and, and you're just kind of maverick and rebellious and kind of just doing your own thing. And, and that has softened in recent years. Uh, for the most part, depending on who you're talking to, you'll get different opinions on that. But for the most part, that has softened. And so today, I just want to say as a church here and as a pastor here, I want to look at some of the facts, let you make decisions for yourself. But, but I have a certain admiration for the Catholic Church that I feel like is necessary to, to say just a little bit. I'd like to say a lot more than this. But one of the things that I kind of admire about our Catholic friends is that they take tough stands on tough issues regardless of the repercussions. Maybe you don't agree with them, and I might not even agree with them sometimes, perhaps, but I'm just saying I admire the fact that their faith isn't always about tolerance. Sometimes we have two extremes. We have what I call truth terrorists, where they just beat up people with the truth, and they don't care, and just bludgeon people. They really don't care about people. They just want to be right, be right, be right. And then you have just these tolerance people, truth tolerance, where we're just like, we don't even know what we stand for. And it's everything, our faith is hidden and kind of in the shadows. And for the most part, over the centuries, you cannot say that about Catholics. Um, another thing, too, is they, they value life. They care for the poor. Um, they have a reverence in worship. I, 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 I sometimes struggle sometimes in modern years with the liturgy of the Catholic Church. But when I'm in it, there's a reverence for God. And sometimes there's this, I, I, I wish sometimes we could find more of that in our church. We are a highly relational church, highly relational, all right? But we can lose the, revelation, the, the, the reverence and therefore the revelational because we don't have a reverence and fear and awe of God. And, and so sometimes we come in, we come in fifth, you know, third song, 15 minutes late. And listen, I'm not judging anybody. But I'm just trying to be a good pastor. There's just a there's just a lack of reverence sometimes. Like we're worshiping God. We're inviting the presence of God into a room and we're kind of like, you know, kumbaya, Pastor Doritos at attitude, you know? And so I, I think there's things about them that I admire, that I wish we had more. Can you receive that, anybody out there? I think we need to be careful about that. Anyway, uh, here's some similarities between Protestants and Catholics and things that we agree on. Uh, number one, we both believe in the Trinity. Uh, we see eye to eye on, on this. Major religions outside of Catholicism and Protestantism do not see eye to eye on this at all. We believe in one God who consists in three persons, three different roles, three distinct personalities. And we as human beings and Catholics and Protestants both believe we mirror the image of God. 
God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are spirit, mind, and body, and it makes up our soul. We have a mind, a will, and emotions. We have thoughts, we make choices, and we have feelings. And those are, we are just the mirror image of God as a tripart being. And so the Father, he, one, one explanation of the Trinity I heard was the Father has the big picture, the Son purchases the paint for that picture, and the Holy Spirit applies the paint. Isn't that kind of a cool analogy of the Trinity? But we see eye to eye with our Catholic friends on the Trinity. Number two, we both believe in original sin, and that man is therefore separated from God at birth. And so we come into this world with a sinful nature. We both agree with that. Some people don't like that, but as Christians, as Protestants and Catholics, we both believe that. We clearly see the reality of that in Scripture. Uh, these are bonus texts that are not in your notes, but Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all miss the mark. We all, we don't, we all, don't, we all don't measure up. Romans 6.23, because of that, says the wages of our sin is death. Separation, eternal separation. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. But what's so cool about original sin is that there is, a, there is an awesome plan to restore that which was lost. The separation between God and man, God has a plan for. In Romans 5.12 it says, wherefore, it's a weird word, isn't it? Wherefore. How many, how many said wherefore today before they got up? Anybody? No, we don't say wherefore that often. Anyway, just thought of that. My brain works like that. Wherefore? Wherefore, as by one man's sin entered into the world, so sin entered into the world through Adam. In fact, we've, we believe we inherited that what we call Adamic nature. I didn't swear. It's just, it's just I see at the end of it. Uh, we have this Adamic nature. And so that nature is just perpetuated through the generations. And, and then it goes on to say, and death by sin. So that's the consequence. And so death passed on upon all men for that all have sinned. Romans 5, 17, further down says, For if by one's man offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. So what this is saying is one man's sinless life and then total sacrifice made it possible for us to be completely and totally redeemed. Just like one person screwed it up for all of us, one person restored it for all of us. Isn't that awesome? So, so sometimes Protestants and Catholics complain about this original sin doctrine. But you cannot complain. On one hand, you can complain and say, come on, just because one person messed up, we're all messed up. Because one person didn't follow God, then we're all going to have to pay the price for that. If Listen, if you're going to have problems with that, then you're going to have to have problems with God's solution. Because one man made it right for all of us for all eternity. One man redeemed us. One man restored us. One man paid the debt that we couldn't pay no matter how much we had in our bank account. Amen? He paid a debt we couldn't pay. I owed a debt I couldn't pay. Thank God he paid it for me. Amen? So we believe that he did that for us. One act of righteousness brought justification for all. Here's the third thing. We believe Jesus died. We, we both agree with this, that Jesus died for sin and, and was resurrected. Catholics and Protestants both believe Jesus died for our sins and that he was resurrected. We believe that Jesus paid the, the, there was a complete and total sacrifice for sins. Uh, we agree on that, and most religions don't agree on that. We both believe he was raised on the third day, and they understand that Christ's resurrection is critical and foundational to our faith. Romans 4.25 says he was delivered up for our trespasses. Uh, in other words, he was put up on a cross, and he was raised, this is when he came back on the third day, for our 
justification. Another scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, talks about the resurrection is the foundation for our faith. Without it, our preaching and what I'm doing right now is useless. And our Catholic friends believe the same thing. Here's another similarity. We both believe salvation is available to all. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to some people, to a few people, just good people. No, it's available to all people. It's available to all people. So we have these things in common. There are other things we have in common, but for the sake of time, I thought I'd major in the majors there. So now, there are some things as we go forward that we must respectfully disagree. And I emphasize respectfully because I don't personally understand why we have to disrespectfully disagree. I don't really get that. I don't think that should be. I don't think that's Christian maturity, personally. Jesus leaned into relationship with people that he didn't agree with. He encountered people and, 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 was in, and was in contact with people that didn't agree like him. The whole point is to be an influence on people that don't believe like us. So why do we have to be volatile or aggressive? Or the other side, why are we just passive and just completely um, you know, disengaged? I think we should be able to engage our culture and be able to uh, be, come, come from an informed position. Amen? Um, one of the things I'll say, too, is that my, in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of others res more respected than me, um, there are a significant number of people who are still in the Catholic Church on a regular basis who have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Regardless of the liturgy that you disagree with, the policies, the procedures, whatever, however you look at that, or even some of the doctrines, I believe, I believe with my whole heart there are many people who are strong Christ followers. Uh, just like I believe there are people inside Protestantism who are hearing certain things that we believe and espouse that are important and from Scripture who are not Christ followers. In other words, there are many people who think because they go to church, they're okay, and whatever church that they go to, whatever denomination they're a part of, and they're not okay. The, the Bible talks about that. You know, It basically says, you, know, you could have done this, this, and this, and then Jesus said, but I never knew you. Depart from me. Okay, so it's all about uh, knowledge, not just knowledge here of God, but relational revelation. That's why we build our faith on the confession, right, More, and, and the revelation of who he is on a personal level. Can I have an amen? So it's okay to respectfully disagree. I believe that's important. But I have some problems with a variety of doctrines, which I'll get into now, within the Catholic Church. Some of them we can't address, like immaculate conception or the deity of Mary and praying to the saints. Uh, you won't see those in the scriptures. But in fairness, they would disagree with a lot of things that, that we believe or we teach as Protestants. For example, uh, that's true of all religions, isn't it? In fact, the Jews don't believe, um, though we have many, uh, you know, we call them Judeo-Christian values, though we have many similarities in values. Jews did not recognize Jesus Christ had come as the Messiah uh, that, that was the first coming. And so they're still waiting for the first coming to earth. So they, they don't recognize Jesus the way we do. Protestants do not recognize the Pope as the vicar of Christ. And Baptists don't recognize one another in liquor stores. So, yeah, so there. Just, just seeing if you guys are with me. Like I said, i got to lace these things in here. Okay, so what are some differences? Okay, so here's, here's some foundational disagreements or differences between the two, Protestantism and Catholicism, that are extremely important to us as Protestants. Number one, Catholics believe in Scripture plus tradition, and Protestants believe in Scripture alone, sola scriptura, as the singular foundation for, Christ, for life in Christ. 
So, so what you need to know when you come here uh, as a pastor, and hopefully you are too, we are Bible-thumping, you know what I mean, uh, Bible-quoting, blood-washed, blood-bought Christians here, okay? So we basically see the scriptures as supreme to anything man could say or generate of his own ability or volition. So, so we see science through the lens of scripture. We, I see beliefs through the lens of, and convictions through the lens of scripture. We see relationships, economics through the lens of scripture because God's word is timeless. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. His word is inspired. It came from God who is not only creator but has all wisdom. Amen? And so we, we lean on that and we believe the scriptures were written by men but inspired by God. And it says this in 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16. I, verse 15 would be a great one to add, uh, but this is, this is a basis for the Scripture being a primary authority for our life and, and also life in the church. It says in verse 15, From a child thou hast known, the, or from infancy, thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation in Jesus Christ. So it's the scriptures that actually bring conviction and direction to your life and point you to relationship with God. And then in verse 16, it says, all scripture, look in your notes, is God breathed. That means it came from him. It's like alive. It's not just like letter. It's God breathed and is useful for what kind of stuff? Teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for everything that's happened in our life, every good work in our life. Is everybody with me? So we believe that the Bible, uh, you know, says things about itself. It has the power for its own fulfillment. In John 6, 63, it tells us that. The Bible says in Ephesians, excuse me, Hebrews 4, 12, it's living and active. And I would say it's living and active if we live and act on it. So it'll help us. In, it helps, it's like a mirror to our life. It's not a window to life. It's also a mirror to our life to help us see the things that need to change in our life. So when we look at the word, we're not looking at a window. We're looking at a mirror. And it shows us what's going on in our life. That's what Hebrews 4.12 is telling us. We believe like Job in Job 23.12 that it is more important, the word is more important than our necessary food. We believe the word is more important than the philosophies, opinions, and traditions of men, Colossians 2.8. So the word is just like foundational. We are sola scriptura as Christians. Is everybody with me? So Catholics believe scripture is important as well, but again, this distinction is they believe the traditions are equal or the same as scripture. So we say scripture, traditions, they say scripture and traditions are the same, equal. Is everybody tracking with me, okay? And so we place a much lower emphasis on tradition. We believe scripture stands alone, and again, they, they think, they'll say basically something like this, the Bible was never meant to be the sole generator of life uh, in, in this world. And so for good reason, though, by the way, most most of these things that I'm saying to you, they're not foolish or foolhardy. They have good reasons for them. And they basically hold that some of the problems that existed in the early church, they worked them out successfully. They recorded the results of those and they became a part of their catechism, their traditions. And so it was basically incorporated into faith. And they, they, they hold or espouse that they have advantages over Protestantism because they conclude they know how to live a more authentic life in Christ in the world and in the church because of these traditions. That's their conviction. Now, many years ago, people like you who were sitting in the pew, I didn't say you stunk, I didn't say Pepe Le Pew, I just said people like you in the pew, all right, um, you were not allowed, if you were raised in the Catholic Church, some of you remember this, you would have to go back a bit, but you weren't allowed to read Scripture. In fact, Scripture was interpreted or communicated to you, for you, by a priest. Um, and it, was, it wasn't until officially... 
though it wasn't really rolled out, but it wasn't until officially 1954 the reading of Scripture was allowed uh, as a part of your daily devotion. And, uh, and, so, and, and still to this day, the official interpretation of Scripture is reserved for the Catholic Church. In 1954, Pius XII said, you can read the Bible as part of your daily experience, and that was a big win in the Catholic Church. But for the most part, and I'm going to insert my opinion here, which I think is fairly solid, but you can chuck it if you want. But for the most part, my experience is many Catholics are biblically illiterate. I'm not saying that as, a, as an accusation or they're dumb. I'm just saying they were never fed the word of God. They never learned the word of God. And so many times Catholics, and that's why I think we have so many Catholics in our church, they're learning more about their faith and what God's word says here than they did in the Catholic church because they didn't know how to navigate the scriptures or study like it says in 2 Timothy 2.15 for themselves. And so it's important that we have the word of God as foundational for our faith. Amen? Here's some more differences. Number two, this is kind of like how do we, how do we know we're right with God as a Catholic? How do we know we're saved as a Catholic or as a Protestant? Catholics believe, for the most part, this is very general but broad, in baptismal regeneration for salvation. Baptism or baptismal regeneration. You guys probably all uh, can connect this with infant baptism. It's through infant baptism that one is saved. Protestants believe you are saved by grace through faith, and it is an, an act of your free will that you as a person have to come to an age of accountability where you are cognizant of the decision that you are making, and you choose God by your own free will and accept his finished work on the cross for you that he paid for your sins, and that that was a gift that he gave you by grace, and by faith you receive that that was for you, and that's the, that's the stance by which we are saved. Is everybody tracking? So there's a difference there. It's baptism, infant baptism, and then there is salvation by grace through faith. Most Catholics believe that, a, that at baptism, a child is saved. They've, how many of you are infant baptized? Raise your hand if you're infant baptized. Wow. It's a lot of you, okay? So they believe that baptism has, it's a big word, but salvific power. Uh, they, they believe in several sacraments to provide salvific power, but this is why Catholics are so huge on infant baptism. The reason for this is consistent, again, with the doctrine of original sin that we mentioned already. They believe that a baby needs to get baptized as soon as possible as an infant in order to wash away their sins, in order to be cleansed from birth. And then from that point forward, they are accountable for their sins. And in order to deal Deal with the sins thereafter, that's what the sacraments are about. And so Ephesians 2 tells us, and that's why we're sola scriptura, it says, For by grace are ye saved, through faith, not works, through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, again, not of works, or we'd boast about it. So baptism by regeneration or infant baptism is a work. We don't believe we're saved by works. We believe we're saved for works. So we receive by grace what God did for us, and then we, in his grace, want to do good works for him. But we're not saved by those, by those works. Is everybody tracking with me? So, so baptism for a Protestant is, is it's like the marriage band of Christianity. It's saying to whom I belong. It's identifying with what he did for us. When we have a baptismal uh, tank right here, when people go down into the waters, it's simply symbolic of what has already happened in our life by faith. We're simply saying, just like Jesus went down into the grave uh, and, 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 and he gave his life and then, was, then rose from the grave on the third day, we're going down and we're leaving our old life behind. That's why 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, the old is gone, behold, all things become new. And so it is a sign 
and a seal. It is an identification. It is a, it is a, it is a coming out of a covenant that has been made between me and God when I get water baptized by immersion. And so believers, Protestants believe in baptism by immersion. So we, we don't baptize babies. We dedicate babies. And if we, and we steer them to that ultimate decision that they make on their own, that they do of their own free will. There's no baby, and you would agree with this, that really knows what they're doing when they're infant baptized. In fact, it's a question that you had probably after you were infant baptized is, how do I know I'm okay with God? And there's that question. So Catholics provide other sacraments to bring that reassurance, which I'll get to in a second. Everybody tracking? Number three, Catholics believe in venial and mortal sin. How many remember those two words? Yep, a lot of you do. And the sacrament of reconciliation, or, it might, or might, you might know it as the sacrament of confession. Protestants believe in the priesthood of the believer, the priesthood of the believer. Let me explain the difference between venial and mortal in the most simplified way possible, because if you read it in the catechism, I have to read it like four or five times to understand it. It's a little difficult, so I couldn't really kick it out simply, but uh, venial sins are kind of like these low-level, level one sins. They're like these uh, white lies. You know, it's like, it's like uh, you know, somebody comes up to you and they show you your new, their new baby, and you're like, oh, he's so cute, and in your head you're thinking, that is the ugliest baby I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> like, that's a venial sin, okay? You know what I'm talking about? You know, hey, I love your haircut. You don't love their haircut. You hate their haircut. Uh, it reminds you of your husband's ex-girlfriend, and, and you want to kill him. And so there's all those things that are going on that happen to you when, and those are like common sins, you know, you take stamps from work and you, you, you go five miles an hour past the speed limit, technically you're breaking the law, whatever, and um, <laughs> they're common sins, okay? Now, mortal sins, these are much more serious. These include things like adultery, fornication, you know, murderous thoughts, abuse, relational abandonment, lust, taking in stray cats, things like that. <laughs> so, yeah, so, okay. Catholic, now, here's, here's why these are important. Catholics believe that if you die with unconfessed sin, I'm going to leave it like this. You're in big, big trouble with God, okay? So, and, and just watch for a while. Study the true doctrines. You'll see it for yourself. So, the question is, what do they do about these unconfessed sins? How do they deal with the continuous commitment of sins? And that's why the sacrament of confession or reconciliation is so important. <clears throat> it was instituted to deal with sins committed after baptism. How many of you ever been to confession before? Raise your hand if you've ever been to confession, right? And you go there, the Father has sinned, you know, and sometimes you, sometimes you don't even remember what you did, you know what I mean? Kind of, one person told me last, uh, last service, they said, I was just making stuff up, you know what I mean? Because I was there. How many made stuff, stuff up? Anybody make stuff up when they went? Okay, somebody did that. You're all a bunch of, bunch of liars for that, too. So anyway, that's, that's a problem. That's, that's a venial sins, okay? Anyway, uh, so then the priest on behalf of God was, according to the traditions, was granted authority to forgive your sins. And then he would basically say, go and sin no more. Go and prove that and prune your life now. Do something to, to begin to uh, sanctify or rectify or make recompense for, for what you did. <clears throat> and so they would encourage certain works. This leads to kind of the doctrine of penance. Some of you are probably familiar with this, where you might have to deny yourself or pray certain prayers, a certain number of times you prayed certain prayers in order to maintain what you've obtained or pay for what you did wrong. And while I think these elements are good, I think in some respects are understandable, I think the application is wrong. Again, if you, if you look at Scripture, um, there, was a, there was a Catholic priest who was trying to kind of get with the times and be a little bit more modern in his approach, and he had a kind of a, a cool church, and so he actually created a drive-through confessional. 
Yeah, drive through. So you come up around the side window, and you can just confess your sins right there to the priest and then drive on. It's super convenient. And so the bishop came, noticed this was going on. He's like pumping, pumping this priest up. He's like, you know what? What you're doing here, it's just it's really friendly. It's, uh, it's really uh, relevant. It's like 24-hour service. That's incredible. It's super convenient. He says, but, you know, I got one caution, the uh, flashing neon light that says toot and tell or you go to hell. We got to get rid of that sign. <laughs> okay, it's not good. All right. So here's our position as Protestants. Our position as Protestants are that, that you don't need a priest. You are a priest. Not a priest like you think. Not a priest with a white collar who just graduated from the Vatican training program, who changes his voice when he prays or can, or can read Latin or stuff like that. No, not that kind of a priest. The scriptural interpretation of a priest. A priest, 1 Peter 2.9 says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people who show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You have the same access, you have the same anointing and authority as a priest of old because your high priest, Jesus, and 1 Timothy 2.5 was the mediator between God and man. And because of what he did, he made it possible for you to go to God directly when you make a mistake. So if you need forgiveness for your sins, 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from some unrighteousness. No, 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 no. Turn to your neighbor and say, no, 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 no. All unrighteousness. So I don't have to go to a priest for my sins because I am a priest and because my high priest made it possible for me to just go to my dad and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And the Bible says every time I do that, he will forgive me. But then he goes on to say, and this is where the, the application is wrong, but the idea is right. Then if you want to be healed or changed and stop doing that, you don't go into penance. You go into confession and prayer with your brother or sister in Christ. That's why James 5.16 says, confess your faults one to another. See, if you want to get forgiven, you go to God. If you want to get free, you tell somebody else. There's some amazing power or formula that God himself created according to his word that you can get free if you can just get it off your chest. You tell somebody, and then somebody holds your feet to the fire, and they hold you accountable, and they pray for you, and they're there for you. Is everybody tracking with me? And so that's what that's all about. So salvation is a little more arduous for our Catholic friends. Salvation in the Latin means healing. And so they believe, Catholics believe that healing is never, or salvation is never permanent. It's never really permanent. They look at it differently. In other words, a simple or oversimplified analogy is this. If you are suffering from allergies, does anybody have allergies, struggle with allergies from time to time? All right. So let's say you have an, you have a, an allergy attack or something like that, and you take an antihistamine. You breathe that in. Boom. You're healed. You experience, follow the analogy, salvation. All right. Next day, you wake up. All of a sudden, you don't feel healed again. You need an antihistamine again. That is a Catholic's view of salvation or healing. It is, requires continuous use, continuous sacraments in order to maintain what you have obtained. Is everybody tracking with me? Now, staying in that same vein or analogy, Protestants uh, similarly believe if we have an allergy, we can take a one-time, lifetime shot and we can receive healing or salvation at the point of our sin condition. We can receive it at that same point. We can receive forgiveness forever and be changed. It was a once and for all shot. Jesus was the complete and total sacrifice for our sins. Past, present, and future. We are saved by grace and we stay saved by grace. Is everybody tracking with me? 
1 John 2, 1 through 2 says, My dear children, these things I write to you that you don't sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We receive his righteousness by faith. He is the atoning. That means he makes us at one with God. It's complete and entire sacrifice for our sins, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Is everybody tracking with me? So by faith in Christ, I'm justified, and by the Holy Spirit, I stay sanctified. But, but Catholics believe there needs to be a penance. So on this side of life, when I'm still alive, if post-baptism, I need to do certain things to maintain or pay for my mistakes. So there's a certain penance. In the old, like in the Middle Ages, there were great extremes that our Catholic friends would go through of penance. They would go on pilgrimages for hundreds, even thousands of miles. They would go on a, a extensive fasts. They would go on a relational, um, you know, um, Long periods of time without relations with the opposite sex. Extreme, extreme things. Today, it's a little bit more modified. All right? So today, it's just like a few prayers, a few more times of this. Maybe a little. The qualifications of penance have been reduced dramatically over the years. But on the other side of life, when we went to make reparations for our sins, they have another thing that they introduce. And this is the final kind of difference. And that is purgatory. Number four, Catholics believe when you die, you go to purgatory or the place of purification. This is where you make preparations for your life uh, uh, before in death. Now, an example would be if, if, if there was Joe Schmo was baptized as an infant. He was baptized as a Catholic, infant baptism to receive salvation for his sins, his sinful nature because of original sin. And then after Joe Schmo was baptized, he grew up and he became a tyrant. And he was just, lived an incredibly sinful life after that, over and over and over again, continued to make mistakes. Then Joe Schmo gets really sick because of his horrible life, and he's going to die. A priest can come to Joe Schmo and pray healing and salvation for him, uh, the prayer would sometimes be called or the result would be called absolution. Sometimes you guys have probably heard of the absolution of sins or something like that. That would be a conviction or what they believe. What they're basically saying is this. The doctrine of purgatory comes in this way. In other words, Joe Schmo is saved. He will not go to hell, but he's not ready to go to heaven. He's not ready to go to heaven. And so this is where he gets free in purgatory of the residual effects of his sin, though forgiven, but there has to be a place of purification. And if, is this term in, in the Bible, Pastor Derek? Is this term in Scripture? No, it's nowhere in Scripture. So Protestants don't believe in purgatory. I understand the reasoning for it, but again, we have answers for this on the other side, before life and after life. In fact, we believe in two judgments, which we've talked about before here at Connect. I encourage you to learn more about that. But basically, before we die, we have to make sure we're okay with God. Because we're going to stand before God, basically the judgment of faith. We're going to stand before God. He's going to say, hey, what would you do with my son Jesus? What's up with you and him? If we, if we answer right to that, if we, if we based our faith on the confession, the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and he paid for my sins, and I received that by grace through faith, you get to go to the second judgment. The second judgment is not a judgment like you're going to be judged. It's going to be where you're going to be rewarded for the good or bad that you did in this life. That's our biblical response to our life after this life. Is everybody tracking with me? Then those are the big distinctions as we go forward. Now, I want you to close your notes, uh, close your Bibles, and close your digital Bibles. And I, I want to say this as I conclude. I was trying to think about how to say this, but our church is very non-traditional, and I realize that. 
like come in here, like where's the stained glass? People used to say that. Where's the steeple? You know, I see the people, but where are the hanging crosses and things like that? And I want to please understand that our roots, my father started this ministry many, many years ago. Our roots were born out of desperation for God. Just like, and what, what ended up happening is our family couldn't find God in the liturgy and the procedures and the religious behaviors of mainline churches. And so I think some of that is affected really kind of the countenance of Connect Community Church in some ways. Maybe it went overboard. Maybe it went too far the other way. You might say, Pastor Derek, are you against traditions? No, I'm definitely not against, not, absolutely not. But what, where we've arrived, let's just say over time, to try to find some sort of a plumb line is that with tr traditions, there must be context an explanation for tradition. Otherwise, tradition just becomes mindless and meaningless to people. And if I'm talking to a current Catholic or a flirting Catholic or a crossover Catholic, I guess, I guess I would say this to my friends is that, you know, when I look around, I see another generation that has said, I've done that. I've been there. I bought the T-shirt. No, thanks. I'm good. I'm all set. And so I think that our response to that is not to change our message, but to change our methods. Because I believe that we should not have a church just for our grandparents, but we should have a church for our grandchildren. And that, that life in Christ should be relevant, it should be meaningful and not meaningless. It should not be mindless, but it should be something that renews our mind and changes us from the inside out. And I don't ever, don't listen as your pastor, don't ever trust tradition, trust Jesus trust Jesus. Will you stand to your feet and let me pray for you? Amen. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to just give a few people an opportunity not only to see the distinction, but see the importance behind it. There's a scripture in Mark chapter 7. It talks about these religious people who hear and yet they don't encounter God. They're putting their trust in the things, their opinions and their traditions. And there's another place where it says you study the scriptures and yet they testify about me, Jesus said. And in essence, Jesus said, I'm right here and you're missing me. So the process of trying to understand what we're trying to understand, don't miss, don't miss the author and finisher of your faith, Jesus Christ the righteous. And if you're here today with every head bowed, every eye closed, God's talking to you. He's talking to you. He's talking to me one time. Changed my life from the inside out. Literally, it's an inside-out job. It's not outside. It's not going to church. It's not doing time. No, it's talking to the one that's outside of time and getting to know him and then spending time with him and coming into a relationship with him. If you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you've never, by grace, this free gift, received this free gift of salvation and received by faith what he did for you, you can't earn it. You cannot earn it. You can't pay for it. It's paid for all you have to do is receive it by faith. And if that's you and you've never done that and you want to do that, I want to pray for you right where you are. Uh, this, could be the, this could be the biggest day in eternity for you. Now is the time of salvation. If that's you, would you raise your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me. I don't want to leave this room without knowing Jesus as my personal Lord. Say, will you pray for me? I'm not going to embarrass you or call you down front. I'm just asking you to raise your hand, and I'll pray for you right where you are. Good and high. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. God bless you, sir. Thank you. Is there anybody else I'm missing? I can't see very good because of the lights. Thank you, honey, up front here. That's awesome. Is there anybody else I'm missing? Good and high. Don't be ashamed. He's not ashamed of you. Thank you. Thank you all the way back there. I see that hand. That's awesome. God bless you. If you're listening online, you respond to this too. God is no distance in prayer. 
Church, would you pray this prayer with me? And those that just raise your hand, would you say this? We're going to confess with our mouth and we're going to believe in our heart. That's what, that's what we're doing right now. Say, Jesus, I invite you into my life. I don't trust tradition, but I transfer trust in myself, trust in tradition, to trust in Jesus. The finished work of Calvary. Thank you that you paid for my sins. Thank you that because of that I can have relationship with you now and forever in Jesus' name. Now, Father, I pray you seal that prayer to every person that prayed that prayer. I thank you that the angels rejoice that another sinner has come home and, and they, their, their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And for that, all the people of God here and now rejoice by shouting unto God and give them a big praise. Come on, let's give God a big praise. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Mark. Woo!